When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Rolling Stone Music Now. I'm Rolling Stone executive editor Nathan Brackett. Today we're going to talk about the new movie from Lonely Island, pop star Never Stop Never Stopping and the art of the music parody. We're also going to talk about the new car seat headrest record and also answer some reader mail about fish. But first, today's episode of Rolling Stone Music Now is brought to you by Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer. You can sign up for Stamps.com and get a four-week trial and a $110 bonus offer when you use the promo code MUSIC. And that was Photo Booth by Joey Perp. This is our What We're Listening To segment, and I'm here with Rolling Stone Record Reviews editor John Dolan. What's up, John? Hey, Nathan. I love that Joey Perp song. You played it for me for the first time a couple weeks ago, and there's like some songs that you like hear it within the first three seconds. It's like you know you love this song, you're going to be hearing it more. It's true. The beat is so dirty. The the horns sort of got like, a, if it's like the famous flames, like playing a party in hell or something. It's just got this really raw intensity to it. And Joey Perp is a uh, Chicago rapper. He's kind of an associate of Chance the Rapper. and um, He's Chance on Ra- the new Chance the Rapper album. He is, right? and Chance the Rapper appears on his new uh, mixtape, which just came out. And it's not dissimilar musically. The, the horns are a big factor, and there's kind of a little bit of the gospel element or the element of sort of struggle and redemption. But it's the sort of dark side of that. It's, you know, songs about... Uh, friends going to prison and you know i see myself in my mom's eyes and, and being on both sides of the burner and stuff like that and yeah so as, we, as we talked about last episode the chance the rapper record coloring book which is which is also excellent is also like super positive has a lot of gospel music and stuff so this this is a little a little dirtier this kind of offers maybe just like an addendum or an, an, an a sort of the example of what chance the rapper is sort of talking about trying to transcend while acknowledging he kind of talks about embodying but the music is exciting there's party jams it's it's just a really great mixtape and this song especially is a stand out. All right. Well, we encourage people to check out Joey Perp. The other song that you brought to the table today is from a group called uh, The Hotelier, but we're not holding that name against them. We're not. We tried. It's It's been tough, but they've transcended their name uh, just as uh, Chance the Rapper transcends struggle. Uh, <laughs> this was a band, I, you know, it was going around people talking about it. The cover of the album is just a bunch of naked people standing in a meadow. And with the combination of that and the name The Hotelier, I kind of thought maybe it'd be some sort of like creepy neo-folk gross thing. Or but, a Spencer Tunic shoes. Right, totally, or, exactly. Yeah. And it was funny because like people are talking about it on social media and stuff. When it's ever on Facebook, they have to scrub the album title immediately off. And if you look on Spotify, it's blurred out and stuff. But it's actually a really good indie rock album. These kind of remind me of the herky-jerky guitar music of the Dismemberment Plan or the kind of like post-REM Athens, Georgia bands, maybe like Guadalcanal Diary, um, a little bit, sort of a mix of different things. And uh, it's just wide open sort of guitar music and what is the, the people on the cover are, are bare naked. The, the emotionalism in the songs is bare naked as well. It's, it's, a, it's a good record. A couple of the songs took a while to creep up on me, but they, they got there. They start slow. It's kind of one of those things where you start, the songs start off, you're kind of like, this is going to turn out sort of average. And by the middle, you're like, this is 
awesome. It's kind of, I don't know, it's the opposite of how things often work out. But the album's called Goodness. It just came out about a week ago. And there's a song on the record called Opening My Grandmother's Mail. So it's that kind of record. Like, get ready for that. You're going to have to deal with a little bit of that. But I think it's uh, worth your time. The final thing that we're listening to that we're going to talk about today is the Car Seat Headrest album, which is just awesome. Maybe saving the best for last. Uh, this is my favorite album probably of the last month or so. I Yeah, I think I would say a contender for the you know, one of the best albums of the year. It's just absolutely a fantastic record. We've talked about them. We were keep we're writing about them. We are in the we are in the car seat. We are behind the car seat. Wherever the car seat's going, <laughs> we will definitely be looking over his shoulder. It's just I don't know if you ever liked indie rock, if you've ever liked Pavement or Guided by Voices or The Replacements, if you've ever found any of these things. It's Rick. He is <laughs> indie rock nation. It really, it really is like the combination of the way that his name is um Will you're Toledo. talking about Will Toledo. Will Toledo he's been he's been around he's he's made many many he's kind of the greatest talent to come out of the kind of Bandcamp diaspora of these people putting up tons and tons of music on Bandcamp or SoundCloud or whatever. And he's been doing that for a little while. The mythology behind him is that he was this suburban kid in Virginia who would, before going to his work at his job at like a guest jeans place or whatever, he would stop, pull into a mall parking lot and write these songs sitting in his car uh, and record them. And he just and has- And he'd be staring at a car seat Car seat, car seat right. And he has- any preternatural gifts as a songwriter that come out. And on this one, he got a real band. He started to think about how could I write live songs? And so it's self-doubting, but it's anthemic. It's catchy, but it's distended. It's just got all these qualities. He is the kind of shabby bastards of young style anthemic quality of Paul Westerberg with the kind of pavement, you know, golden off in the distant sunset romanticism with the sort of late 60s who power pop side that you heard in Guided by Voices and bands like that, all kind of at once in this molten form almost. And this is the record where he really shows that he's a talent that will, you know, if he continues on this course, could be making great albums like this. You know, we could be talking about him in 20 years. It's just an it's and, his, and this definitely, I mean, for my money, this is definitely the record to get from him. I mean, I, I, I've enjoyed some of his stuff yeah. in the past, uh, Teens of Style from yeah. last year, but this one's called, I forget if we mentioned, Teens of Denial. It's his first full band record. And talk about, like, an artist that, like, builds to real, like, crescendos. Like, the chorus on Drunk Drivers is, like, yeah, one of my favorite Yeah, the song we were talking about, Drunk year. Drivers, Killer Whales, is a song where he starts off kind of moldering in his own sort of doubts about life and doubts about the world, but the guitars kind of push him to fight through and struggle through. But if we learn how to live like this, maybe we can learn how to start again. Like a child who's never done wrong. Get to this point where he's, you know, yelling, it doesn't have to be this way. We don't need drunk drivers and we don't need this sort of dark things in life. We're going to make the world our own. We're going to, he's going to come through this song and give you a hug. It's just an amazing moment on a record that's full of them. It's a, it's a, it's, it really is one of the better, one of, it might be one of the best indie rock records of all time. It's a great record. Wow. Okay. I'll well, say it. I will hammer right, on this table and all claim right. it. You also said preternatural, which yeah. means that you must be a record review set. Something but, like that. <laughs> so, uh, that's uh, Car Seat Headrest's Teens of Denial. John Dolan, thanks for coming on. You bet. Thank you. If you run your own business, constant trips to the post office can get in the way. With Stamps.com, you'll be able to spend less time at the post office and more time growing your business. Stamps.com makes mailing and shipping easy. You can use your own computer and printer to buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or any package. Right now, you can sign up for Stamps.com and use the promo code MUSIC for this special offer. 
You get a four-week trial plus a $110 bonus offer, including postage and a digital scale. So don't wait. Go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in music. That's Stamps.com. Enter music. I'm a superstar. I kick down the door. Got the money in the bills, and I'm also so And that was I'm So Humble from the new movie from Lonely Island, pop star, never stop, never stopping. Connor for real, yo. (laughs) I have your David Fear, senior editor for film and TV for RollingStone.com and Rolling Stone in general. (laughs) And I have the the great Rob Sheffield. Hey, Nathan. Uh, Who needs no introduction? Who needs no introduction? (laughs) We're going to talk about pop star, and we're also going to talk about just music parodies in general and why... Music parodies are often better than just normal films about music. Is that? Is yeah, I think that's a fair thing to say. I mean, think about how many music biopics we've seen. I mean, especially in the last, I don't know, 10 to 15 years. And I mean, now they either follow one or two tracks. They're very kind of like cradle to grave in which you see the young Ray Charles or the young Johnny Cash. Their formative years, their childhood traumas. And then there's that kind of eureka moment of like, hey, I just discovered uh, I Walk the Line or I just discovered what I say. And then it goes through their ups and downs, success and the rise and the fall and the re- the, the rise, re- the fall, the, the walk on the beach. Exactly the right. rehab. Exactly. Right. Yeah. The the second act, which there's supposed to be none of those in American Lives, and yet every music biopic essentially, you know, throws that out the window. Or you now have these things where they take one very specific period of a musician's life and they essentially make a biopic out of that. Like Miles Ahead is a great example of this, in which rather than make a movie or really given Miles career like seven or eight different movies about how he kept reinventing music don Cheadle, who wrote and directed and stars in the film concentrates on a period of miles life mostly when he wasn't making music and he introduces these fictional characters to kind of get at what you know what Werner herzog called an ecstatic truth and takes this entire notion of like this guy who kept making music and what happens to him when he can't do that anymore so you know, it, even that's starting to become kind of a cliche. Right. I mean, you can see it in Love and Mercy, too, where they I take see two why of those they do things. It. Yeah, I, I mean, see why they like, do it. Because musicians' lives are messy. Like, yeah. I mean, everybody's life is messy, but musicians' lives especially, too. And so right. that's a way to kind of drill down. And But with music parodies, very often you guys are getting either actors, comedians, or actor-slash-comedians who are real musicians or who have a real affection and ability to play this kind of music as close to the real thing as possible. And when you do parodies like that, I mean, that's kind of why Weird Al's had an entire career for these decades. That's really what the Lonely Island, who are the people behind Popstar, have kind of made their bones doing. And right. when you watch a film like Spinal Tap, all those guys were real musicians, essentially in a real band. Right. Uh, or Popstar, it's amazing to see how close they get to this thing and how funny they get by, to use Sandberg's words, we want to get as close to the real thing as possible and then just amp it up to this absurd level. And that's right. what makes Popstar to me like easily the best music parody since Spinal Tap. Wow. That's a bold <laughs> That's a bold, bold statement. statement. Considering the genre is not that big, not so bold, but I, I, right, I mean, the Spinal I, I Tap of the 21st century? I need some time to process this statement. I did see the movie last night, Rob. I know you haven't seen it yet, but I saw it last night. I can attest that it's very funny. There's very, very funny moments. I, I, I don't know if it's, you know. If, if CB4 is a mighty lofty standard to reach. CB4 does Chris have Rock's some- classic gangster rap parody movie at the time when that seemed like a you know 
a niche genre. And it was the first big Chris Rock movie. It was the first time we had a chance to see him on screen for a couple hours the way we'd wanted to for all those years. He was on Saturday Night Live getting one sketch once a month in the last 10 minutes. And for something as sustained and loving as CB4, just a a startlingly great movie. Keep in mind, I have nothing. I mean, there are days when uh, I will sing Sweat on My Balls, like, you know, (laughs) the classic CB4 cut, you know, to my kid uh, when I'm putting her to sleep or, you know, when we're uh, walking about the neighborhood. I actually thought that last year when the NWA biopic came out, they were going to make Straight Outta Low Cash. (laughs) <laughs> biopic of, of the CB4 thing. No, well, CB4 is a great movie. CB4 was great too because, I mean, one thing that Chris Rock said, I think at the time with NWA or maybe a little bit after, because you know, Chris Rock is a huge hip hop fan. He, he's really smart about this stuff. He said, like, one thing that struck him that nobody ever got about MWA was how funny they were, how they were kind of a comedy act. Like, a yeah. lot of their stuff yeah. is yes. really funny. You know, a lot of their lines. Uh, and CB4 got like, Revealed that truth in like Technicolor, you know. It was, yeah. it, there, there's a lot, and he clearly loved the music. Um, loved the music and got like the actual names in the genre to, you know, to play along and actually, you know, make their commentary. It was so, right. and that was before we knew like, you know, Ice T's dramatic chops. So right. seeing him <laughs> well, talk about CB4 and its influence on him, and he's, you know, right. I thought I was hard, man. Right. Well, let, all right. Well, first off, though, let, let's just let's back up for a second. Let, we'll talk a little bit about Popstar. David, uh, you, Interviewed all the guys uh, for the magazine and the I website. Did, yeah. You you uh, you obviously love the movie. Can you tell me a little bit? Of, tell us a little bit about you know what it is, uh, what, the basic premise of it for people who haven't seen it. Right. Uh, I'll back up a couple of steps. So the three guys in the Lonely Islands, Andy Samberg, Yorma Tacone, and Akiva Schaefer, had been wanting to make feature length film. For a while, they had done Hot Rod and it didn't do so great. And they wanted to do something that they said was a little bit more in line with what they were doing in their digital shorts for SNL. And coincidentally, they had started watching what they call popumentaries, which are like the One Direction film or the Katy Perry film. It's Katy Perry, part of me. And the Justin Bieber film, Never Say Never. In we which, should do an episode entirely on those, actually. That's a good we, genre. We yeah, really should. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We should. A deep yeah. dive. A right. popumentary deep dive. Right. And... They had started thinking, well, this is a really – these genres, it's very funny just on its own watching these kind of promo docs that these bands are putting out. And it would be really funny to, like, parody this. And it's a great excuse for us to do music and it's a great excuse for us to do the sort of jokes that we find funny. And so they started putting together this kind of composite pop star that was a lot of Justin Bieber and a little bit of Katy Perry and a little bit of Adam Levine and a little bit of – some hip-hop stars. They actually mentioned The Carter, which is that great Little Wayne documentary that never quite got released because he sort of squashed it. Right. As something they kept going back to and taking inspiration from. And they get Connor for real, who was this kid who's like Justin Bieber, was this like drum prodigy when he was a baby, and then formed this kind of Beastie Boys meets the Backstreet Boys band called the Style Boys. I mean, you guys all remember the donkey roll, right? Was a oh, great, of course. Who wasn't doing the donkey roll <laughs> in 1986? Great dance. And then becomes this solo artist and starts selling out stadiums and be, hits this like Bieber level of pop, being a pop juggernaut. And the entire film is essentially like a mockumentary about this guy and how he becomes this huge pop star and has all the kind of excesses that you associate with a pop star now. And then kind of hits a flop and goes through a bad patch and then he has to get back to with his friends and his ex-bandmates to kind of find his voice again 
And it's incredibly funny. It's a great excuse for these guys to send this kind of stuff up and just put in a lot of great jokes and a lot of great songs. I think somebody said that it kind of feels like a little bit like an 86-minute long digital short. And it, I, I kind of agree with that, but I don't see that. That's not a bad thing. I mean, there's some incredibly funny stuff. Uh, the, the Macklemore parody oh song, God. the Same Love parody, I, uh, I'm is, not gay, is very... But if I was, I would want equal rights. And then he rem- <laughs> just keeps reminding people that he's not gay every other verse by occasionally shouting out titties and Leonard Skinner <laughs> and push-ups. Um, I had seriously been listening to that song and that soundtrack since I saw the movie. I think it's so funny. I mean, it's it's funny that you said that they said at least that they were watching popumentaries and those were like the the inspiration for that. Because I mean, as we kind of touched on before, it's like just about almost every good movie about music, like Spinal Tap or CB4, has had this mockumentary format. Like, why why do you think that is? I think partially because a lot of these mockumentaries. I'll put it to you this way. You don't need to love Ray Charles to make a biopic about Ray Charles. But if you're going to make a mockumentary, if you're going to kind of affectionately send up this genre and not do it in a really mean-spirited, you know, F-you kind of way, you need to have a real affection and affinity for this kind of stuff. And chances are you even have an ability to kind of play this sort of music. Like all the guys in Spinal Tap were accomplished musicians, much less metal musicians. Right. Which is why the songs in Spinal Tap sound as close to the real thing, to actual metal songs as possible. And, you know, anyone who's seen the digital shorts, who's seen Dick in a Box or Jizz in My Pants or uh, Lazy Sunday, the kind of stuff that these guys made their names with uh, on SNL, you know that they know how to do that kind of 90s R&B really well. Or they know how to do this kind of modern pop stuff with a little bit of like hip hop and EDM thrown in really, really well. Right. Like and, like the, the Dick, in, Dick in the Box probably did more for like, Color Me Bad's legacy than anything <laughs> in the last like Absolutely. twenty years. Absolutely. Yeah. But also, it's yeah. a genre like like a lot of genres that inspire these movies that is best approached as comedy because that's the most emotionally accurate way to come to it. And boy band parodies have been as popular as boy bands have. Together, the MTV movie about the the the, the documentary that had Chris Farley's brother Kevin as you know as, as the leader of Together, uh, who had the hit Me. Plus you equals us, <laughs> calculus. That, the classic, that was like absolutely yes. classic. Uh, if you remember the movie Josie and the Pussycats, there was the great boy band parody that Seth Green starred in like in 2001. Absolutely, yeah. Du jour, like, which was perfect. This is a genre where being funny about it is the best way to get at the emotional truths that, that make the music popular in the first place. Although you can do it in a mean-spirited way and still be really funny. I keep going back to the Mr. Show sketch of three plus one minus one. <laughs> That's and good. When it's David Cross and Bob Odenkirk essentially kind of sending up Color Me Bad and a lot of those those like uh, late 90s kind of R&B rap-influenced sort of music. And they're clearly not fans of this music. They don't. It doesn't seem like affectionate mockery. They just seem to be kind of like pissing all over it. And it's still like just incredibly laugh-out-loud funny. Whereas when you look at the stuff in Popstar, they even went on record as saying, I remember talking to them and they asked me at one point, do you think the film is mean-spirited? And I thought, no, not at all. I mean, it's taking a couple of digs. There's some digs at 
at like Tyler the Creator because there's a rap character who's very clearly based on him, like a cross between him and Wiz Khalifa. And he gets a couple of knocks and some of the EDM folks, like there's a, the DJ at one point puts on this ridiculous spotlight helmet that clearly looks like a dead mouse helmet. It's a dead mouse kind of Daft Punk reference. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, you can tell that they're kind of like nudging them in the ribs there. But for the most part, I was like, no, I don't think it's mean spirited at all. And, and they said, if there's any pop star out here that would be offended by this movie, that would break our hearts. Like we clearly, that was clearly not what we set out to do. Not just because they're friends with a lot of those guys. I mean, Justin Timberlake shows up and, you know, those guys and Justin Timberlake are pretty tight at this point. But the fact is they never set out to be like, this music's horrible and we hate it. It's like this is the stuff we listen to and it's kind of ridiculous. And this is our chance to take those aspects and, like they said, just amp them up to an absurd level. But I have a question for you, Rob Sheffield. Yes, David. Even though they have said that this character, Connor, for real, is not solely based on Justin Bieber, there's a lot of Bieber aspects in it. Do you think that it's possible to actually parody somebody like Justin Bieber who very often, and like most pop stars in the kind of contemporary pop landscape, almost seem like parodies of themselves to begin with? Well, that, that's an excellent question. I'd like to hear Rob's answer to this. I mean, especially that one year with Bieber where he was going through airport security with monkeys and, yeah. and yeah, the, kind of the lost Frank, year. The thing, the thing about yeah. all these pop stars, you can't argue that they don't realize that they're funny and you can't argue that they're not funny on purpose. And Justin Bieber is hilarious and has always been hilarious. Going back to the Chris Rock thing about NWA, yes. yeah. Yes, embracing the uh, comedy ridiculousness of it all. I don't know if you remember the Video Music Awards where he arrived wearing his smart lesbian grad student glasses <laughs> and, uh, and carrying his pet snake, who was named Johnson. To be fair, he was reading a lot of bell hooks at the time. Yeah, exactly, yes. And he was wearing the snake, and Selena Gomez was his date, and I just remember them being interviewed on the red carpet talking to Sway of MTV, and Selena's got this expression on her face saying, this is what boys are like? This is what dates are like? Like, tell me this is not what my future is going to be like. Why is he carrying a snake and wearing those glasses and, and talking about how being a drummer is really like where all his music comes from and improving it by going to a little drum set that happens to be set up right off the red carpet and playing a long drum solo. And it, it, there was something... You knew there was absolutely no way that Justin Bieber did not realize the comedy aspects of what they do in any pop star. I mean, you mentioned Katy Perry, that that entry that she does is a great showcase, like all her actual records for, for how hilarious she is. Yeah, you would never accuse Katy Perry of not having a sense of humor, yes. either about herself or virtually anything. Yes. So it's it's the kind of thing where, I mean, it was... Startling for a lot of people at the time who loved Spinal Tap and hated metal, it was really surprising to them how much metal bands instantly embraced it as homage. I remember like right. Rob Halford from Judas Priest that summer saying, you know, we're having a video machine put on the bus just so we can watch this over and over again on tour. And I remember reading that and thinking, wow, well, you know, if he likes it, since if anyone was going to be offended by it, he would be. There's, so the film starts off with a concert scene that involves Adam Levine's hologram humping itself. Two Adam, <laughs> a hologram of two Adam Levines basically grinding up against each other. And uh, when I brought this up to them, the first thing they said was, like, Adam Levine's a saint. Like, he, the, he let us in front of a Maroon 5 concert to get a big crowd scene. He let us come and, like, film a bunch of shots of Andy walking slow-mo so that we could have something authentic for the movie. And they said the second thing is he not only loves the movie, he's seen it three times 
and it hasn't even come out yet. To which they then said, the ultimate goal that we wanted to make for this film, Andy Samberg said, my wife's uh, a musician. She's married to Joanna Newsom. And he, she goes, the one thing I kept telling her was, we just want to make a movie that bands want to watch in their tour bus. Right. And, you know, I would argue that though I'm not currently in a pop band, currently, <laughs> uh, it feels like the kind of movie that bands like One Direction would find really funny, even as they're being ribbed in it, and watch it on their tour bus over and over again and quote lines from it and just kind of make fun of it and be in on the joke. All right. Well, we talked about CB4 and Spinal Tap. Are there any other like music mockumentaries that you think rise to that level? We mentioned, I'm not sure if Walk Hard quite does. Rob, for your money, are there? The Ruddles is way the up Ruddles. there. That oh, how did we forget about the Ruddles? And that's yes. a perfect All example of how loving, loving the music is what makes it authentic. This is the Ruddles movie is by far the best movie made about the Beatles. And that's partly because it's made by people who loved the Beatles so much. They were willing to mock aspects of the Beatles that, you know, were not lingua franca at the time. Uh, the music is so incredibly funny. The, the great psychedelic John Lennon ballad, Cheese and Onion. And <laughs> it's from the movie Yellow Submarine Sandwich. And he's just sitting there playing the piano, the cartoon John. And he's like, I've always thought in the back of my mind, Cheese and Onion. And it's, it's, it's such a perfect loving parody. That's what makes it funny. That it's the kind of thing where if there was an aspect of, uh, of, of taking a shot at it, then it wouldn't work as comedy because right. that the whole point is how loving it is. I don't know if you count Hedvig in this kind of thing. I would, but I, I, I said I would. I, I <laughs> well, it's, it's certainly <laughs> got a but sense of humor. It's not, yes. yeah, absolutely. And, and, yeah. Uh, and that it's so full of, of homages that you would only get if you were totally like crammed with the music of Bowie and Roxy and Lou Reed and Iggy, that there are all these jokes that, that are designed just for true fans to get. So right. uh, it's a movie like a lot of these that you can watch even if you don't know anything about the genre and find it funny, but there's all these added Easter eggs in there for people who really get the thing that's being parodied. Which is such a, I mean, it's interesting because, I mean, most big, you know, most movies are made to try to appeal to everyone, but it's kind of the nature of music that, that you know, Great music doesn't always appeal to everyone. Sometimes music is about picking your tribe and just loving this band and going really deep. And so I think your point, to me, it means that like a lot of these great music parodies are kind of, are like music in the sense that you, you really, they are for real fans yeah. in that sense. I mean, they, they can be appreciated, but maybe they're not necessarily for Although, a, a huge audience. I don't know. I mean, when I think about, the Ruddles is a great example of this. Like you said, a lot of that stuff wasn't necessarily lingua franca. But I imagine a lot of people who would have seen the Ruddles over the Ruddle TV weekend, they ran it, uh, would, have, would have seen the All You Need Is Love TV appearance. They would have seen or at least seen bits of the Magic Mystery Tour TV special. They would have seen the Ed Sullivan stuff. They would have seen a lot of the performance things. They would have known about the, you know, We're Bigger Than Jesus interview. And so in a lot of ways, for right. the Ruddles to kind of make fun of that, it's not like they were making fun of the MC5. Yeah. Or the Velvet Underground. Right. Like they were making yeah. fun of a band, you know, gently making fun of a band that was one of the biggest rock bands in the right. world still to this day. A legend to last a lunchtime. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, the Beatles are the perfect topic yeah. for a, mo yeah, a movie like that. Everybody is, the most people are going to get the jokes. Whereas, like, with Spinal Tap, you know, maybe one of the reasons that Rob Halford loved it is that he was part of the group that got the jokes more than anybody. Yes. Yeah. 
what was it? I think Steve, maybe it was Steven Tyler that was recently talking about this. And he goes, yeah, Spinal Tap's not a comedy. Spinal Tap's a horror movie. <laughs> <laughs> when you're a metal band, Spinal Tap's a horror movie. And yet you will not find bigger advocates for that movie than metal bands. Bruce Dickinson, yeah. you know, Rob right. Alford, like they love that film because they recognize that. And they recognize how absurd it is to do a set that's made of Stonehenge, much less a set that's made of tiny Stonehenges that are in danger of being crushed by dwarves. Right. I love that, that, that music parodies that Andy Dick would do on his little MTV variety show. I don't know if you remember those, but he sure. was but because it was the early 2000s and he was mocking the artists of that time and getting them so precisely right in their details. So there was Kid Christ, who was the uh, Christian rap meddler, who like was full of like all these kid rock parodies that, you know, and, and Marilyn Poppins, who uh, was the, the nanny from hell, uh, Daphne Aguilera, but like that he was taking these genres at a time when these are very, like, you know, despised by the adult world, teen genres, and approaching them very lovingly from the inside, which sounds like a joke that Daphne Aguilera would make. But <laughs> that something about, you know, Kid Christ, you have to, like, really know Kid Rock's work well and, and his persona well to get why it's comical that he's, you know, always saying, Matthew 326, bitch, you know. <laughs> that, his big hit is, she's no stranger to my manger. No receipt, I can't exchanger. Say a prayer, my soul's in danger. And that, you know, that he's like doing all these like super, you know, super Christian kid rock songs. That that there's something always about to combine music and comedy. It really, really helps to just be a passionate fan of, of the music involved. People listening to this podcast can't see this, but Nathan and I are actually holding up our lighters. After that, <laughs> that last song, that was a beautiful rendition, sir. What, what should the next music parody uh, be on? Do we? Is there? I mean, I, I did the the some of the stuff in Popstar made me think that there should be a great EDM parody movie. Oh, it's it's uh, ripe. I, mean, it's, I think it's, it's ripe for parody that yeah. genre at the moment, and maybe certain aspects of modern hip hop. I mean, the, there are some great digs at various pop stars in pop stars, not just, you know, Bieber and Katy Perry. There's, there's a great scene. <laughs> One of the funniest scenes in the film is this sort of take on Kanye's very public, very extravagant proposal to Kim Kardashian and that Connor for real is going to propose to his girlfriend in this huge field with seals singing and doves being released and wild wolves on the thing. The, the barrier, and then the wolves get loose. And, and a bank of photographers. Exactly, yeah, and yeah, a bounce yeah, between a lot yeah. of paparazzi to capture yeah. the intimate, end quote, moment. And then, you know, naturally the wolves get loose and Seal is, seal is mauled by wolves. I don't think that's a spoiler. It's in, it's in the trailer. Uh, and the funny thing was they wrote that scene. The concept apparently was Akiva Schaefer's, and they wrote that scene with Seal in it, and they were like, Seal's the only person who can do this. Wow. And... Seal not only said okay and did it, which they said surprised him. They're like, he was perfectly happy to, you know, say those jokes and, and make fun of his scars and like do this. They go, but he was being actually attacked by a wild dog with, <laughs> you know, one of those armbands on to protect him. And wow. they did that scene, they estimate, between somewhere between five to ten takes. So wow. there's five to ten takes of Seal gamely running up to a limo and joking about his appearance and then getting like bitten by a trained dog in the arm. Um, wow. That's dedication to comedy. <laughs> Amen. Amen. I think we've covered a lot of, uh, a lot of ground on here. David Fear, Rob Sheffield, Nathan Brackett. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. <laughs> Always a pleasure. 
And that was Tweezer by Fish. I'm here with associate editor Patrick Doyle to answer some reader mail on Patrick's recent stories on the band. Can you tell us about these stories, Patrick? Sure. Trey Anastasio got on the phone to talk about Fish's upcoming summer tour. And I always look forward to talking to him because he uh, doesn't do a lot of interviews, especially about Fish. So somebody was saying, you know, they look forward to the once a year that he does an interview to talk about Fish. So um, it's always fun. And, to, and he's always like smart and thoughtful and has yeah, yeah. very specific things to say. Usually, Absolutely. Right? Yeah. Right now he was talking about he still gets excited after, you know, 31 years of Fish and playing long, you know, extended musical jams with them. And he still gets excited about it. So. Right now, he was talking about how they sort of have learned how to communicate in like a real melodic way, and they, every jam sort of has a purpose to it. And he just has an interesting take on their playing at any given time. I thought some of the stuff about his post-show routine and the band's post-show routine was really interesting. Yeah, that's another example of what he gets excited about. You know, you'd think that after 30 years that they would just kind of clock in, leave the show, and then get on stage the next night and do it again, but. The minute they they all have their separate buses, but they're texting all the time after a show. They have a group fish text, and um, you know they say, "Hey, do you remember that little part of Harry Hood?" Or you know they they all know what they're talking about because they they're so sort of um, inside each other's head after this, these many years. You know, Trey will say that I can tell when you know I could tell when Mike Gordon was going through his divorce, what was going on in his life because. The way he was playing, he wasn't quite there with all, the rest of us. And it sort of described it like a, a boat that they're all on trying to row right. <laughs> together. They, they know each other so well at this yeah. point, right? So uh, he was talking about what he does after the show. So they get on the bus, and then they're all talking about the show. And then the next day, Trey will wake up and uh, make his coffee and turn on his iPhone and uh, open the Fish apps. There's a couple apps. One of them is Live Fish, which is the official app. And then the other one is called Fish OD, which is... Uh, Fish on Demand, which is a fan-made app that the fans didn't even know that Trey knew about, but it turns out he uses it every day. And uh, and he's constantly trying to figure out his, the perfect guitar tone. Um, so he's listening to the both the Fish OD app, which is fan microphones, and then the Live Fish app, which is the soundboard, actual soundboard. He's hearing where it's come, what it sounds like um, on both of them, and he uses that to figure out his sound. Wow, that's amazing to yeah. be, yeah, that like kind of still like geeked out about your show and your craft and looking at you know, being a real student of it, yeah. you know, after this many years. Yeah, absolutely. Here, let's read some of the letters. Um, one was from a, maybe a doubter, D Benson U2 is the username. I wonder how popular Fish in the Dead would be if not for the invention of LSD. Hmm. Uh, I mean, that's a kind of like the classic criticism, right? Yeah, yeah, and there's plenty of of people who don't do that who go to, uh, to the shows, you know. Right, I mean? right. Okay, this is from a user named Cliff. Gotta say, I've been a deadhead for years and only appreciated fish from afar. I went to Magnaball last year. That's one of their. Uh, that's their. That's help me out. Their the band. yearly festival. Yeah. They, well, they they or, put on festivals. This was the one last year that they really kind of stage a festival that is. They play nighttime midnight sets, and it's just sort of their own curated right. thing. Right, and they usually have it in... Uh, uh, all over the place. Right. A lot of times in the east, northeast. Right. Anyway, I went to Magnaball last year, and it was hands down the greatest concert festival experience of my life. All the guys in Fish seem so down to earth and ego-free, mm-hmm. unlike some members of the dead. Cough, Phil, cough. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh. Uh, they are really easy to love and root for. Can't wait for lock-in. Yeah, they don't play a lot of festivals, but they're, the one they are doing this summer is lock-in in Virginia. Right. 
Some of the other letters we got are uh, touched on John Fishman of the band's uh, political activism. Yeah. Uh, do you, you, you want to tell us a little bit about what he's been up to? He has been on the road playing, uh, sitting in with, uh, he sat in with my friend's band in Maine <laughs> um, at a Bernie rally. Uh, he's been on, as Trey calls it, the Bernie tour, and he's just getting the word out about about Bernie. And um, even though it's been sort of reported that Trey is also on board with that, I asked Trey about Bernie, and he would not commit to saying anything politically because he said that kind of gets in the way of the music and the experience when people come see you live. He he kind of referenced Jimi Hendrix said something like that, that he was not going to speak about the revolution. He'd rather, uh, if he has to choose Frank Sinatra or the revolution, I'll choose Frank Sinatra. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, he's been on the road just, you know, campaigning for Bernie, and Bernie called Fish one of America's great bands. So, All right, well, yeah. he, you know, Bernie's got some Vermont cred, obviously, yeah. so he, he knows some Fish, I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, okay, here's a, a comment from somebody named Kite Flyer 89 I feel it's very hard to say I like fish and I like Bernie Sanders without falling into a very specific stereotype, but <laughs> eh, I like fish and Bernie Sanders. Yeah. Okay, I am actually posting high right now, <laughs> but that's a coincidence. Oh. Maybe it's not a coincidence. When Bill O'Reilly does those, you know, heavily edited uh, montages of Bernie Bernie people. I feel like these lo- they're looking out for these type of people. Right, you know? the watch out, Kite Fire 89. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, this is from a reader named Tom Vader. All musicians should stay far, far away from politicians. You work way too hard earning that public capital to squander it on a foolish partisan talking point. There's literally nothing to be gained by endorsing any of them. What you will do is allow them to post about it on social media as if your musicianship qualifies you to pick a leader for everyone else and alienates anyone who might have liked you and your art but dislikes your politician. If that's what you want then you're doing it right. Mm. We had a whole episode about whether musicians should be involved in politics, and yeah. we could debate that. I will say this, though. You know, hey, Chris Christie is still a Bruce Springsteen fan. Right. Even though, Bruce, they have very different politics. So, hey, it's not. I, I don't think it's always the case. Yeah, and Bon Jovi was just out with Hillary right. uh, yesterday. <laughs> right. This is from uh, one of our frequent commenters, Get to Work People. Uh, is I he? Lo- he is. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I like the way Trey doesn't want to get political. Good. Go out and play good music and entertain. He's he's echoing Tom Vader's thoughts. Mm-hmm. These thoughts are also echoed by somebody named Strictly Heinz fifty seven. Uh, <laughs> thanks, Trey, for not mixing politics and fish. Reaching the conscious thought objective is easier when we are not thinking of our concert neighbor's political position. Mm-hmm. I have always felt Fish provided a great platform for escaping these realities. In the end, helping us to see these past worldly differences and connect on a metaphysical level. Shameless song request. Tweezer going into Life Boy yeah. in Portland, Maine, please. Oh, Smiley I'm, face. I'm going to be at that show, so. <laughs> All right, we'll see. I hope we'll he does see. That. That, was, that was a thoughtful comment, you know, that definitely had some metaphysical points from uh, a real fish fan. Yeah. So uh, we'll see if they do Tweezer and Life Boy. Yeah. Well, I think that's it for Reader Mail, Patrick, but, but thanks for coming on. Thanks, Nathan. Thanks for listening to Rolling Stone Music Now. If you like what you heard, please leave a review on the iTunes Store or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you. 
Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was a three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.